I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. I'm not sure about you guys, but I get so excited when we see in the news that a long unsolved case makes its way back into the spotlight and finally gets a resolution. This is happening more and more lately, and to me, it's like Christmas morning. It's so satisfying to get to lock away some now elderly murderer who thought he was going to get away with it for the remainder of his life. Each time we close one of these ice-cold cases, I get a surge of hope. Hope that in time we can close thousands more, the ones that haunt the victim's family for generations. Not to be a downer on my own optimism, but there are a lot of cases to cover. Since the 1980s, over 185,000 homicide cases in the United States remain unsolved. If you look at the numbers by state, you'll see a staggering difference in clearance rates, or the rate that a homicide is solved. Taking a look at the numbers from 1980 to 2008, the state with the highest rate of solved homicide cases is Wyoming at 89%. The lowest belongs to Michigan, coming in at 52%. I will say that the number of homicides that occurred vary greatly between these two states. Wyoming had about 500 murders, where Michigan had well over 23,000. Other things that came into play are living in a rural area versus urban, as well as the number of detectives on staff and their varying workloads. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we have a bit of a spread as well. Washington has a clearance rate of 71%, and Oregon is a little bit lower at 64%. Now, if we look across the United States as a whole, our clearance rate is just over 64%, but 50 years ago, it was 90%. The cases that don't get solved go into a file to be divvied up amongst detectives who dedicate as much time as they can in the hopes that they'll find a new witness or discover a new clue that has gone unnoticed all this time. As we learned from Detective Lindsay in our episode, The Constant, sometimes that's just one day a week where they can escape their daily caseload to jump into an unsolved case from decades past. What makes a cold case so hard to solve? Much of it boils down to time. The longer a case goes without information, the colder it gets. Witnesses pass on, people stop talking about it, and perpetrators can cover up their tracks and flee. But, as I mentioned, things are looking up and we're seeing more and more cold cases in the news because they're finally getting closed. We've talked about several cases that have been closed thanks to the enhancement of DNA analysis. However, you might be surprised to learn that DNA only factored in closing 3% of cold cases. The majority are solved by new witnesses, someone who comes forward years later with new information. Today, we're going to explore a cold case that was cracked open when someone who knew something spoke up and fresh eyes were brought to the long unsolved case. While the impact of a cold case is agonizing, this case might offer a bright light for others who are waiting for answers. I can't think of a more magical place to be in the winter than on a Christmas tree farm. I just recently went to a local family-owned tree farm with my daughter. We go there nearly every year. We walk around and look at the decorations. I force her to pose for a few pictures that I will inevitably forget to have printed to make into our Christmas cards that I probably won't send. We grab a hot cocoa and we pick out our tree while we discuss who gets to pick the color lights this year. 
Sometimes we have a little small talk with the family that owns the farm or the dozens of workers mulling around offering their smiles and their assistance if we need it. It's such a happy day for us. But today's case makes me look at the Christmas tree farm with a little bit of sadness. Edward and Wilhelmina Morin, or Ed and Minnie as everyone called them, were a lovable couple in their early 80s. Minnie's first husband, George Hadler, passed away in the 1950s. George and Minnie had four children together, Hazel, Dennis, Dale, and Delbert. After George died, Minnie met and eventually married Ed. Her and her children moved in with Ed to start a new phase of their lives together. Although they were now in their twilight years, they were incredibly active in their community and with their church, and they ran a successful 120-acre Christmas tree farm in Ethel, Washington. Ethel's a town just south of Chehalis. The couple was part of a local Grange Hall, acting as Grange Master and Grange Treasurer for over a decade. Every December, the Morins hosted a holiday luncheon for couples from their church. In 1985, that party was scheduled for Thursday, December 19th. Unfortunately, this day would not turn out at all as it was intended, and the couple would not be present to receive guests to their party that year. Instead, they would go missing and a massive search would ensue. On December 19, 1985, guests began to arrive at the Morin Luncheon to discover that no one was home. One woman phoned Dennis Hadler's wife to let them know that the Morins weren't there. This was incredibly unexpected, so the family began making calls all around town to see if anyone knew where the couple was. Delbert Hadler arrived at the house and let himself in through a back window so he could let the rest of the family in. Now, my first thought at this detail was, why doesn't the family have a key? But everyone interviewed in this case basically says no one locks their door. It's a tiny town. It's one of the reasons they were concerned that something was wrong with the Morins, because they never locked their front door. Those initial fears only grew once they gained entry into the house. Inside were signs of a disturbance. Drawers were left open and papers were strewn about. The Morins were very private when it came to their finances, yet inside were boxes of bank statements all over the floor in every room left for anyone to see. This doesn't seem likely when there had been a party scheduled. The house would have been spotless in preparation for their friends. The police were notified and began investigating immediately. Right off the bat, they noticed that there was no forced entry. Curiously, Minnie's purse was hidden behind the couch underneath a newspaper. The family told police that that was likely done on purpose as she would never leave her home without her purse. It was also abnormal for the blinds behind the Christmas tree to be closed. The family liked to leave them open during the Christmas season so everyone who drove by could admire their Christmas tree. Police started theorizing early on that the couple could have been kidnapped. Not only did they own a successful Christmas tree farm and have several healthy bank accounts, their son Dennis Hadler had an incredibly successful business as well. He owned a logging company that was one of the largest in the Pacific Northwest. Perhaps someone took the couple in hopes of earning a ransom. While the police reviewed the Morin home for clues and began interviewing neighbors and friends, an employee at the Yardbird Shopping Center called to report a green Chrysler car left unattended in their parking lot. On December 20th, police go to check it out and confirm it's the vehicle of Ed and Minnie Morin. The car windows, frosted with the ice of the early morning, made it hard to see through to the interior. 
One of the officers tried to melt and scratch just enough ice to get a peek inside. They didn't want to make too much of a disturbance in the event that they were able to pull prints from the windows or handles. The interior of the car did not bode well for the welfare of the Morins. It was obvious something alarming had occurred. There was shotgun pellets throughout the front of the car and embedded into the dashboard. Blood coated the front interior and made its way outside of the lower passenger side door. There were no bodies in the car, but left behind was Ed's hat. Like Minnie in her purse, Ed always went outside wearing his hat. The scene very obviously illustrated that one or more homicides took place in the car due to the sheer amount of blood combined with the shotgun pellets. By December 22nd, more people from Yardbirds met with police to discuss what they saw in the parking lot days prior. More than one person had seen a man near the Morin's car carrying what looked like a gun wrapped in white cloth. They worked with sketch artists so that police could begin circulating the man's image to generate additional leads. Everyone in town began looking for the couple. Over a hundred people volunteered with search and rescue. They made a grid of the area and broke into small groups to search. It's a very rural area with dozens of logging roads, so days went by without a single sighting or new lead. On Christmas Eve, a man driving up Stearns Hill Road looked out the window and saw what he thought was a CPR dummy off of the side of the road. He got out to take a closer look and made a very grisly discovery. There, lying on the ground, were the bodies of Ed and Minnie Marin. Once the autopsies were completed, it was found that the Marins had been murdered with a sawed-off shotgun. Minnie was shot in the left shoulder and neck, and Ed had been shot in the middle of his back. He also showed trauma to the head, indicating that he had been hit with an object prior to being shot. There were drag marks along the ground, indicating that the bodies had been dragged from the road, likely from a car, and into the woods to be disposed of. There wasn't even a crude attempt to conceal them. The things you hope for when you discover a homicide were unfortunately not available to police. DNA wasn't yet an option for them, so they looked for fingerprints. Unfortunately, the car offered none. While they had both bodies, there was no sign of a weapon. They did make two valuable discoveries that would aid in the investigation. The first was cigarette butts. They found these inside the car. Ed and Minnie didn't smoke, so it was obvious that their killer did. The second discovery was found in Ed's pocket. Inside his pocket, they found a bank receipt, and this led police to Sterling Savings Association, where they could interview a woman named Patricia Hull. Patricia was a bank teller who had interacted with Ed the morning they disappeared. She explained that around 9.30 a.m. on December 19th, Ed had phoned her to tell her that he wanted to make a withdrawal, and he asked if they had any money on premises. She said they did, they had a little bit, and she asked him how much he needed, and he replied with $8,500. By the time Ed arrived at the bank, the money wasn't completely ready for him. They needed a cash courier to ensure that he could get the full amount. He said he would sit in the car with Minnie to wait until they had it. Once the money was ready, the teller went outside to get Ed, but he quickly left the car to meet her at the front door. The teller said that while it didn't appear that Ed was under any stress, she thought she saw other people in the car with him, but didn't get close enough to see them in detail. On December 28th, nine days after the murder, police were still struggling to find a solid lead, and the funeral of Ed and Minnie Morin took place. Outside the funeral, investigators watched closely so they could see everyone who attended. 
Perhaps they were looking for a family member who didn't show up or an unexpected visitor. Inside, a family who had already started mourning quietly prayed for answers to who committed this heinous crime. Minnie's son Dennis distinctly remembers placing his hands on his parents' caskets and making a silent vow, a son's promise, that he would find out who did this. By January, police were still looking to improve the composite sketches they had created to help locate the man seen in the Yardbirds parking lot. They were resorting to having witnesses go into a hypnotic state in the hopes that they could garner additional detail of the man's face and clothing. What they ended up with were several sketches depicting a man dressed in a green army jacket and wearing a hat. He had dark hair with a little bit of beard growth and appeared to be in his 20s. Though even without the sketch, police had their theories on who they thought could have murdered the couple, but he didn't look anything like the sketch. Initially, police thought someone close to the Morin's son, Dennis, had done this. His son, Mike Hadler, the Morin's grandson. Mike had a history with police and was known for his explosive personality. And not only that, he had an affinity for smoking. When police interviewed Mike, true to form, he lost his temper. He was heartbroken and furious that someone would accuse him of killing his beloved grandparents. Police asked Mike if he's willing to take a polygraph test to clear his name. Having nothing to hide, he agrees. And just like he told them, he passed. He also happens to have an alibi for the day of his grandparents' murder, which was confirmed by police. If Mike had an alibi and the rest of the Hadler family was cleared, police had to look to someone new. The next logical step were the people outside of the family who were close to the Morins. They focused their effort on the seasonal workers on the Christmas tree farm. Many of these men traveled in and out of the town with the holiday, and they would know the Morins, they would know their schedule, and they would know that they had a very successful business. All of the workers had their photos taken in order to show witnesses. While one man seemed like a very likely suspect due to his background with theft, He, too, had an alibi, and the seasonal workers proved to be a complete dead end. The remainder of the decade brought little more information to light, but years later, in 1990, police receive a phone call from a man who said he had just found out his brother was involved in a double homicide. The caller claimed that this man, who all referred to as the pseudonym Scott Coulter, killed his wife's grandparents and stole their savings. Scott Coulter was now the number one suspect. It could fit. The guy had a history of violence, drugs, and burglary. Police hatched a unique plan to try to lure Scott in. They knew they had nothing on this guy, so if they wanted any chance at arresting him for the murder of the Morins, they had work to do. They decided to pose as the mob and lead Scott to think that he was being shoulder-tapped to join. The meeting took place in Tacoma, Washington. Two detectives posing as mobsters get Scott into their car with them and start their initiation. Here's the creative part. In order to join the mob, you're going to have to spill your guts. They told Scott that they wanted him to tell them his deepest, darkest secret, something terrible he had done that no one knew about. Now, they don't just take a shot in the dark. They do allude to telling him that they had a source who said he might know something about a double homicide of two elderly people a few towns away. 
They tell him they need him to tell them something that would indicate he's the one who pulled off the crime. They wanted him to prove that he was the baddest of the bads, and that was the only way they would respect him and be comfortable putting him into their crew. Scotty starts to talk. He says he took the old folks to the parking lot of the Yardbird and killed them by shooting them. One problem with his story, he tells the mobster detectives that he shot them with a 22. That's not the case. These two were murdered with a shotgun. He went on to tell them more incorrect information. So the detectives knew this guy was totally full of shit and just using the opportunity to get street cred. By 1992, it would seem that police had new suspects in their sights. Thanks to a tip from an informant the year prior and several witnesses who selected the same suspected men from the gallery of photos. Hundreds of tips had been gathered and there were quite a few that mentioned two people in particular, two men who were brothers from the neighboring town of Mossy Rock. Rick and Greg Reif were pretty well known in the area because they've established themselves around town as bad seeds. Drug users and drug dealers, the kind of guys who carried guns and weren't afraid to threaten people with them. Family members of Robin Reif, Rick's wife, suggested that it was very likely that Rick abused his wife. Their relationship was considered toxic. Violence radiated from this man. Multiple people said that he had a past of hurting animals, one time shooting a cow and another time killing multiple puppies. Robin Reif eventually divorced Rick and served time in an Arizona prison for drugs. Police decided to reach out to her to see if she could confirm any of the information they were getting from tips and from their informant. When they spoke with her... They let her know that they had questions about a murder and that Rick might have information on it. She responds with, the one with the old people? She then goes on to say that Rick and Greg killed the Morins and the day of the murder, the brothers asked her to pick them up near a logging road in Chehalis. When she picked them up, she saw Rick holding a shotgun while the men stood next to the lifeless bodies of two elderly people. While police knew that Robin was a questionable witness due to her history with law enforcement and drug use, she was the best hope they had at this point. Perhaps she could help them uncover new clues or connect them with new witnesses. Unfortunately, Robin ends up unexpectedly dying due to a heart attack, setting back all of their work. Even though by then the police had received over 800 tips, had an informant, and were pretty sure the Rife brothers were involved, they made no arrest. They apparently didn't have enough to build a winnable case. No weapon, no connection between the Rifes and the Morins, no fingerprints, and not enough credible witnesses. By the time the new millennium kicked off, the investigation had been well underway for 15 years. There had been the highs of new information and witnesses and the lows of failed composite sketches and dead-end leads. Other lows included no funding for a cold case. Dennis Hadler, the Morin son, eventually fronted the money to keep the case alive. He even prepared a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest, as well as hiring a private investigator to continue looking for answers. Those answers shockingly came from someone in 2002, someone they never would have expected. Jake Shriver was a 17-year-old boy who lived in the neighboring town of Mossy Rock back in 1985. Jake knew the Morin family as he went to school with several of the grandchildren. After nearly 20 years of keeping a secret, he was ready to unburden himself and decided to call the police. What he told them would invigorate the case again. 
He detailed to police how the morning of December 19th, Jake and his mother witnessed the Morin's green car exit their driveway and start heading west down Highway 12. They were driving behind the car, which was going rather slow, so they decided to pass it since they were in a hurry to make an appointment. As they passed the car, Jake was able to clearly see who was inside. Driving the car was Ed Morin, and in the back seat sat his wife, Minnie. They weren't alone. Next to each of them sat a man. And both of these men were recognized by Jake. They were not only from the same town, but he was on friendly terms with one of them. There in the Morin's car sat the notorious Rife brothers. Not only did Jake get an incredibly clear view of them, he made eye contact, and he was well aware that both men got a clear view of him. Nearly a week later, Jake heard the news regarding the Morins and got incredibly scared. Him and his mother decided not to tell police what they saw right away. They wanted to see if the brothers would get arrested and then they would come forward. They knew these men were dangerous. A couple of days later, Jake was sitting outside of his mother's work when Greg Reif approached him. Greg demanded to know if he had told anyone that he had seen him in the Morin's car the other day. He said he hadn't told anyone, and Greg began to threaten him. Rick then appeared from around the corner and joined in. They made it perfectly clear that they were willing to hurt Jake and his family if he were going to tell anyone what they witnessed that day. Jake, who was already scared, was now even more fearful because these two men were confirming what he already thought might happen. He feared for his entire family. So he stayed silent out of the fear of losing everyone he loves. To ensure that Jake stayed scared and that he didn't tell anyone, the Rife brothers began a near-daily drive-by of the Shriver home. Now that Jake had unburdened himself to police, his information would breathe life into the very cold case of Ed and Minnie Morin and help police finally discover what had happened on December 19, 1985. Police also now had some very important information on the Rife brothers. These guys were threatening witnesses. Perhaps the people that had been interviewed years prior knew more than they initially told police. Now, with new detectives joining the force and giving this case a new look, they intended to revisit all of the previous witnesses. The team, led by Detective Bruce Kimsey, who took on the case in 2005, went back through the entire case file to begin excluding old theories and considering new ones, re-interviewing witnesses, and looking for new clues like those brought to them by the new witness, Jake Shriver. Early detectives had a theory that it was someone close to the Morins who committed the crime. The original argument was that money wasn't something the family would have talked about with people who weren't close to them, so someone close to them would have had to known that they had money. There were holes to be poked in this theory. Detective Kimsey knew that the Morins had lived during the Great Depression, and he understood that some folks who lived through that often kept their money in multiple bank accounts, which is exactly what the Morins did. The person who kidnapped and robbed them only stole money from one bank account, which led detectives to consider if maybe the perpetrators didn't know them at all. All of the men who worked on the Christmas tree farm and any others who fit the original descriptions provided by the witnesses had their photos taken early in the investigation. These were low quality and very small, so Detective Kimsey worked to improve those images so that they could be revisited by witnesses. They were enlarged, colorized, and sharpened so you could see things that were not visible before, such as eye color. They then brought these enhanced photos to the witnesses and re-interviewed them. Most people consistently chose one to two of the images presented, the Rife brothers. Witnesses who originally pointed out the Rife brothers with the poor quality pictures still consistently chose them again. 
The interviews brought integral information to what would later be called by the sheriff's department as, quote, a rock-solid case. While some witnesses had since died, they had plenty of supporting evidence against the duo and enough witnesses were alive to testify in court. The new theory police had was that the Reif brothers were looking for a quick way to get their hands on a large sum of money, and they hatched a plan to rob the Morins, a local family they had learned had a successful business. They entered the Morin home on the morning of December 19th, gun in hand, and demanded money. Perhaps the Morins claimed not to have any in their home, so the Reif started rifling through their drawers looking to see what they could find. Eventually, they found the boxes of bank statements. After seeing that one account had thousands, they kidnapped the Morins in order to force Ed to make a withdrawal from his bank account and deliver the cash to them. Once they had their hands on the money, they needed to get rid of the Morins so that they couldn't go to police. The Rifes forced Ed to drive up the logging road and demanded the couple get out of the car and walk into the woods. When the couple refused, knowing what was coming, one of the brothers hit Ed in the head. The couple was then shot one at a time while they sat in the front of their own car. The Rifes then dragged the bodies from the car into the woods to dispose of them before taking the car back into town. One brother took the car to Yardbirds, making sure to take the weapon and abandon the car right there in the parking lot. They then went on a spending spree and a campaign to instill fear in any person who happened to have seen them that day. People who saw them near the Morin home, in their car, and in the parking lot. Then they fled in the late 80s and early 90s to move to Alaska and live as free men. With their theory and witness testimony to support it, police were finally able to secure warrants to arrest Rick and Greg Reif in 2012. This would mean making a trip up to Alaska. When they arrived, they learned that Greg Reif had died. There was only one Reif brother left to pay for the sins of the two of them. Washington detectives get to Rick's home in King Salmon, Alaska, where they find him, clearly having seen better days as he was on a number of medications. They inform Rick that he's under arrest for two counts of murder, and they begin the trek home. Once Rick Reif was arrested, witnesses who had been too scared to come forward started to talk to police. It looked like Jake really wasn't the only witness that the Rifes were threatening to keep quiet. There now seemed to be dozens of people ready to help put Rife in prison where he belonged. On July 6, 2012, Rick Rife was officially charged with two counts first-degree kidnapping, two counts first-degree burglary, and two counts first-degree murder. His trial kicked off on October of 2013 and lasted for six weeks. Ninety witnesses were presented to the court. Let's go through a summary of some of the important testimonies offered in court. Don't worry, I won't go through all 90. Oh. First, there was the sightings. Jake Shriver provided his testimony and everything he witnessed the morning he saw the Rifes in the Morin vehicle. Several other people saw the Morin's green Chrysler driving near Bunker Creek Road and noted that there were two additional occupants. Unlike Jake, they didn't know who they were, but their descriptions matched those of the Rifes. Witnesses Sherry Amel and Mary Jones spoke to the fact that they saw a man fitting Greg's description in the Yardbirds parking lot. He was standing right next to a green car, which we later learn is in fact the Morin's vehicle. About 45 minutes after the first time they saw him, they noted that two men were standing at the car, wiping it down. He appeared to be carrying a firearm, a rifle that was wrapped in a white cloth. 
He was wearing an outfit that fit the description of the men witnesses saw in the car with the Morins, a 20-something man in a green army jacket, stocking cap with a beard. He also picked Rick Reif out of a photo lineup in his original interview. Several other witnesses all spoke to similar sightings at Yardbirds. Obviously, witnesses who were able to testify to seeing the Rifes were imperative, and while most of the trial witnesses were those that did witness this back in 1985, there were a handful that had important information to the case regarding the weapon and admissions of guilt. One of these witnesses was Rife's own cellmate. Well, he had an adjacent cell in Lewis County Jail. Erwin Bartlett was in prison on assault charges, and the state offered him a reduced sentence if he testified against Rife. In court, Bartlett testified that Rife not only killed the Morins, but admitted to him that he had an accomplice who was, quote, no longer with us. Rife and Bartlett were both housed in the medical unit for several days due to a variety of issues. And during that time, Bartlett mentions that Rife had talked to him about the Morins on more than one occasion through what they called the cell phone or the vents between their cells. Bartlett ends up being on the stand for only a few minutes, yet he remains the topic of conversation for hours. Defense attorneys are working really hard to get his testimony tossed out, and I think it's understandable when you hear a little bit about his history. Erwin Bartlett was in prison for over 13 years before he met Rife in the Lewis County Jail. In the 90s, he had actually done time for attempted murder in New Mexico. Get this, he comes home and he finds his wife in bed with two men, and then he attacks them with an axe. Full-on Chicago style. Yes. So he gets arrested and convicted for attempted murder and does his prison time. He ends up escaping and manages to avoid police for six months before he finally gets arrested again. He then does his time without issue and moves to Washington, where he ultimately gets arrested again for assault and does a couple of months in Lewis County Jail, where he then meets Rife. He axe murdered three people in a crime of passion? Attempted. I don't think he he killed any of them. Still. I know. Bartlett is granted furlough so that he can leave a few hours, mainly for medical reasons. And while he's out on furlough, he gets this idea to sneak in his liver medication into jail in his butt cheeks. This was, of course, caught by staff right away. But instead of getting reprimanded and going back to his cell, he requests time with the detective because he has information to share. The plea deal between law enforcement and Bartlett was that they would give him a lower sentence in exchange for his truthful testimony. But defense attorneys really questioned if someone with such a colorful history such as Bartlett could really be trusted to help determine a man's fate. Leslie, or Les George, is a friend of Rick Reif. They were close prior to the murder. Les eventually spoke to police and testified to knowledge that Reif had access to a shotgun. Back in October of 1984, Les requested that Rife also help him purchase buckshot. He then asked Rife to saw the shotgun down for him, which matches the description of the gun used to murder the Morins. According to George, the rifle was returned to him before the summer of 1986, and Rife made it clear that he wanted to make sure none of his fingerprints were left on the gun. George tucked the gun away in his mother's closet. Her husband found it, realized the gun was sawed off and thus illegal, and decided to get rid of it by throwing it in Mayfield Lake. A witness by the name of Kathy Thola dated Rick Rife in 1986. She testified that Rick had told her that he had killed someone before and he isn't opposed to killing again. 
Similarly, a man named Marty Schmetzler spoke to the court that he had heard the Reif brothers speaking at a party planning to kill someone, and this happened before the Morin murders took place. The final witness in Reif's trial was an ex-lover of his. Deborah George had what she described as an intimate online relationship with Rick Reif the year before he was arrested. The two started off friendly, but over time their relationship turned more sexual, and he also started to confide in her on a much deeper level. Not sure if the name sounds familiar, Deborah is the ex-wife of the witness I mentioned before, Les George. Deborah was married to Les for 15 years. She actually met Rife through her and her husband's joint Facebook account. Rife had sent Les a friend request that sat untouched for over a month. Deborah saw it and her curiosity got the best of her. She had heard all about this guy and how he was possibly linked to the Morin case, so she decided to accept it and begin talking to him. Deborah told the court that Rife had told her Ed Morin refused to get out of the car when they drove to the logging road, so he hit him in the head before he shot him. This was consistent with what the medical examiner outlined in his testimony. All of the Lovebirds chats were combed through by a computer forensics expert named James Dibble. He confirmed that the messages were quite intimate. Some were also quite disgusting. While this was not presented to jury, Rife often told Deborah he wanted her to do sex acts, some bestiality, but also that he wanted to have sex with her where the Morins were murdered. This was something Deborah thought he had already done, had sex where dead people were located, like graveyards. Despite the clear, uh, intimate nature of the messages, prosecution believes that Rife used Deborah as an opportunity to check in on what people knew about the Morin investigation. He wanted to know if police were on to him. At the end of the six-week trial, Rick Rife was found guilty on all counts and of all aggravating factors. These were vulnerable elderly victims, he had a lack of remorse, and he used an accomplice. He was sentenced to 103 years for the first-degree kidnapping, first-degree robbery, and first-degree burglary, and the first-degree murder of Ed and Minnie Morin. He never really showed his cards. The details of the murder were left to our imagination as he refused to say whether it was him or his brother who had fired the shots that killed them. What was the motive for the death of an elderly couple? A couple of loser guys wanted to steal the Morins' money so that they could purchase Christmas presents and large quantities of cocaine to sell. When they got that money, they decided they had to kill them so they wouldn't get caught. The worst part of all of this is they didn't even know them. They just heard a rumor that the couple had money and they were easy targets. As it turns out, Rick Reif wasn't just a drug-dealing, kidnapping murderer. There was more in store for him with the legal system. A year after he was convicted of the murders of the Morins, he was prosecuted for child rape. A 38-year-old woman came forward to tell the world that when she was a child, her mother's live-in boyfriend, Rick Reif, raped her. Prior to his conviction in the Morin murder, it looked like he had been questioned in a sexual abuse case from the 1980s, but he was never charged. Now that the victim was grown and ready to come forward, the case was reopened. The charges brought against Rife were for two separate instances where he abused her, one in 1984 when she was nine years old and an additional in 1986 when she was 10 years old. The unnamed woman spoke directly to Rife in court. She told him how the one night in 1984 when he first raped her had changed her life forever. But even so, she gets the luxury of waking up every day and seeing the people she loves while he gets to rot away in prison. 
Two of Ed and Minnie's remaining children, Hazel and Dennis, attended the trial in support of the woman. They felt connected to her, having been tormented by the same man for decades. A plea deal was agreed to, and Rife had six more years added to his 103-year sentence. In 2014, Rick Rife was ordered to pay restitution totaling over $25,000. This was to cover the extradition from Alaska to Washington, as well as the trial costs and the Morin's funeral costs. Rife did try to file appeals, mainly around the trial not being fair, that two of the composite sketches that looked like him should be considered hearsay as they were not authenticated, that the use of private investigators wasn't fair because the witnesses only started coming out of the woodwork after the investigator came aboard the case, that it was unfair because the new case leader, Detective Kimsey, was friends with Dennis Hadler and insinuated that he couldn't do his job correctly because of that. There were more claims around false testimony and such, but he really was reaching. All claims were found to be baseless and his appeals were denied. Rick Reif will spend the rest of his life in prison. A single crime can have impacts on multiple generations, and cold cases make the same lasting effect vastly more intense. There's no turning of the page to end the chapter. They're constantly waiting for a new witness or a new clue to help shed light on what happened to their loved one. The effects of losing the loving elderly pair of grandparents took a severe toll on the Morin family. Their granddaughter Denise suffered a miscarriage of her twins due to the stress of the investigation. Their grandson Mike was a suspect for decades, and in his eyes, the only way to cope and clear his name was to seek revenge. After he learned about what Jake saw, he started looking for the Rife brothers and found out they were living in Alaska. So he went there. He planned to kill them. He spent his evenings going bar to bar looking for people that knew the Rifes and possibly where they were living. No one would talk to him, so he wasn't able to find them, which, of course, was for the best. Mike's father finally convinced him that what he was doing wasn't something his grandparents would ever want. They needed him home with the family. They weren't about to lose their son to some quest for revenge. Mike finally saw reason and boarded a plane back home, and I'm happy to say he at least got to see Rick Rife face justice and pay for what he did to his grandparents. While I do question how long it took to close this case, I realize gathering evidence and securing witnesses can take time, and no one wants to take murderers to court and lose because their case wasn't buttoned up. But cases like the murder of the Morins keep me optimistic that even after decades, someone might come forward and offer police a clue that will help them solve the case and give the family the answers they desperately seek. In the words of Dennis Hadler, the Morin son, People should never give up. There's always hope. I remember not locking my door being younger and then to to be in a tiny town where yeah. literally everybody knows you and your family drives by your house on the way to work. Yeah. It was just common for them to leave it open. Well, and to be well known and loved and local business. like, And they had a party plan that yeah. day. You know, you, they're expecting to just be able to walk yeah. right in. And oh, like, I've had friends minute. be mad at me because they had to knock going, what's wrong? Why is your door locked? I always am shocked when your door is locked. I'm used to walking right in. <laughs> but for the record, I've gotten much better. But, you I know, it was it all the really time now. abnormal for these people to drive up. They see the blind shut. They see no car in the driveway and the doors locked when they know there's a party, an annual yeah. party. Yeah. So that was really scary for them. The way you were talking about this case when, you know, it was holidays and everyone was going over 
and then they realized something was wrong totally reminded me of your case that you did last year for the that holidays. one was hard I, I know you had a hard time with that we all had a hard time with that case but yeah. I remember you particularly thinking about that yeah I was like but you know it's important to share but um yeah very similar you know and upsetting you had said the ex-wife died of a heart attack and then they're like all right we'll stop looking at the brothers even though she was basically telling us it was them i know i i well i will say and we can kind of talk about the timeline in a minute because i had problems with it i think it was just really hard for them to get someone who had enough details to be considered an actual credible witness and she was finally being able to corroborate all these little tips that are coming in and then she dies and they're like well we lost our big witness that connected all these other clues but it's they went through all that with that other guy to pretend we're in the mob yeah. and we're gonna set up all this stuff or like follow them or I absolutely mean, well another th- another thing to keep in mind is this was several generations of detectives this changed mm. hands so many times the Kim, uh, Detective Kimsey, who ended up closing it, he was a child when this happened. He's from wow. the area. He remembers the Morins. The entire police force kind of thinks of them as their grandparents. Right. So it was a emotionally charged case, too, which I think can lead to blurriness of something. Mm. You can't. It's like you're up too close to it. Right. And you had said about the timeline. Someone came forward and. 2002 jake came forward in 2002 and then 10 years later they're like yeah these guys so here's the thing hey guys i literally made eye contact with the two guys that i'm friends and i know them (laughs) and i'm finally like putting my neck out there and for that guy had his like be stressed about that for a decade there is unfortunately not a lot to fill that that time frame from 2002 to 2012 that you're going, what the heck were they doing? Like, were they just building a clue each week, writing a page, you know? Yeah, it'd be one thing if it was like we were going, 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 going. But it sounds like, okay, we've got that. Now and let's then, see what happens. Oh, yeah. Let's go yeah, check they, in on Had them. they done it five years earlier, they would have gotten Both great, them, too. Right? So I have been corresponding with Jake Shriver, and he is uh, willing to talk to us. We just haven't been able to record that yet. And that was one of my questions because he made some comments that made it sound like he didn't just call the police once in 2012. He tried several times to get more attention on this case so that it could be closed. So I kind of want to hear from him mm-hmm. what the timeline really was like for someone who was so involved in the case. Yeah, because maybe he can say, oh, yeah, they called me every month and asked yeah. for something else because they were always working on it, but still 10 years. So I think what we'll do is have that call and then maybe add the interview mm-hmm. to this after we yeah, post it cool. initially so people can kind of get an update. Um, do you, I don't know if you said or if you know how old the brothers were or ballpark when it happened. They were in their mid-20s when it happened. Okay, and I so cannot like tell you. something, almost 60s. Yes. Okay. I cannot tell you which one was older. I think I think Rick was the younger one, mm. but he's often referred to as kind of the boss. Mm. He bossed his brother around. Uh, but unfortunately, I couldn't find a lot of personal information about them. Oh, that's interesting. I'm very upset at all these witnesses. Very. The mob mentality of not coming forward or not. I mean, just send an anonymous Let's... letter with really specific Whatever your details. I understand if I'm that 17-year-old kid and that's my 20-year-old friend and I know they're dangerous and I know they've killed someone, that makes sense. But even then, finding some sort of way of getting that and to know, like, I don't know, just 
I, I get that that's scary and these guys are going to come kill me. But then to find out it's 90 people to some variation, mm-hmm. like you guys, like you're, you're going to win over those two guys. Like they're not going to kill the whole town. I don't think they all knew that, though. To them, I mean, let's let's try to put ourselves in their shoes. To them, they have no idea the oh, other yeah, witnesses all, exist. Yeah. It's just them. They know these guys are bad dudes. They just killed elderly people, for God's sakes. I can I can understand, but yeah, there comes to a have time. That many people, though. and then the whispers of a small town. Like they had to know that these guys did it. And right? then, but th- it also feels like a mob mentality of they're all carrying it. Those whispers and the we all know yeah. it's them, but we don't say. I and don't it's know. like I just I I tr- I cannot for the life of me understand how there was so much that it didn't close for so long. Yeah. I don't want to like blame anyone, but I do see what you mean. Like it is hard to swallow. Yeah, I mean it's like I, I thought of uh, the Kyron Horman case mm-hmm. and the stepmom. It's pretty much the consensus. Everyone cons- yeah. consensus. Thank you. Cons- <laughs> it's pretty much the consensus. Oh my god, <laughs> there's a feeling throughout the city that I'll. Mm, I'm a. We'd have to do a poll. <laughs> a large number of Portland natives. It feels like the direction of the Kyron Horman case tends to point towards the stepmom. Correct. If I saw her in the car at 2 p.m. that day driving with Kyron in the car and I've had to hear about this for all the... How do you carry that? The difference is she's not going to threaten your life. You don't know her personally. She, You don't know that she totes a gun around town threatening to kill people on a regular basis. So I think we have to, we have to think like that. S- small town, rural America, guys have guns, do drugs. They do nasty things on a day-to-day basis. I guess I understand is what I mean. I have no tolerance for it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I I get why you would be scared to, but to not be willing to find a way i give it a year yeah i will i 100 percent agree that the case should have been closed sooner it is possible they were rarely working on it like they this guy came in in 2005 this head detective he was on it that whole time yet it still only closed in 2012 so how much did fresh eyes do right well and plus if you don't have any evidence it's like we're just sitting here waiting true so often without a weapon you hear that so often in cold cases of we're sitting here and there's nothing we can do until someone comes forward to connect it Mm -hmm. right yeah and that's like we we have all the pieces but jake did yeah that's the thing yeah so it's like but you look at these other people you had the ex-girlfriend come forward and be like, yeah, he told me about it. You have this woman with her joint Facebook who's saying, I love oh, that part. I knew that my my husband had told me that da 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 And then we got in this like steam. Like, but screw she's, both can of I you. Can I say she's all of us, though, that she's like, mm, I know this guy's a bad guy, but yeah, I got to know more. <laughs> but not to pursue something no. unless you're pursuing closing well, the case. That sucks for less too, who... He's probably realizing after his wife's having this emotional affair. Well, I guess I'm going to tell him about the gun after all. Yeah. Like, Not so much my friend. And and that to me, you know, they aren't victims in this. So there's no blaming here. There's like, what is wrong with you? Why are you? That's why these guys got away with it. And this dude lost not only his family members, but so much of his life being under the microscope and judged and thought of this guy that killed his own family because these ladies are like, oh, my God, you're so naughty. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it's. I'm so over it's that sad. hot for serial killer it's thing. It's sad all around um, and frustrating. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's see. And mm-hmm. the family, uh, I mean, Mike, I've talked to him a little bit. He's said it's hurt his family greatly. And he's thinking about talking to us about, you know, what that impact looks like. But it I, sounds like there's so. maybe some 
animosity between the family. And I wonder, like, did did people think he did it in Probably. his own family? Yeah. Okay, the woman coming forward saying that she had been sexually assaulted as a kid. Mm-hmm. That's why you tattle. Everyone knows I love a good tattle. All these witnesses holding this in, who knows what, there's no way that that dude stopped. Oh, yeah, I had that sexual assault right then, and then I killed those old people, and then I was over it. Yeah. Like, that's why you say when you see something, all these tip numbers are anonymous. Like, you can get that information out. Yeah, it's your choice because if you're, you're stopping testify. this other stuff from happening. You're stopping people from getting killed, being raped, being assaulted, being all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so it's like I'm happy it got solved, but man, is it frustrating that Greg got out, got away with it. Oh, I know. You know? Oh, I always find it not amusing, but uh, in its own way, when someone is doing their appeal and it's always on like you guys the most fair. ridiculous. Yes. It's not. I'm innocent and here's why i can prove this isn't this like uh, actually that sketch didn't really look like me so i'm gonna have to say we uh-huh. had a mistrial it's i like, highly oh, recommend reading the source i have which is the state versus rife it is his appeals and it lists oh, out all gosh. of the reasons he i mean he basically wants his ex-wife's testimony thrown out and it's like i mean it was it was accurate like yeah. they, they recorded it it's all there to be heard like it it isn't made up uh, I mean, he really was reaching. But I mean, what else are they going to do? It's their life. It's their life on the line. Mm-hmm. They think they can get away with it. They'll try. Yeah. No, I mean, I I get that. But it's also like, hey, guy, that that's not helping your case when you're like grasping at the yeah. smallest straws. You know ever. what? I'm, I always wonder: Are there murderers who don't file appeals? And the only one I can think of was from my case a few episodes back. Uh, with the it was a child abuse case mm. and he didn't want to fight it he's like oh, just that's good yeah but i think about it, i'm like how many times does that happen i feel like everyone falls i know the balls on that oh and th- again thinking about mike if i'm living in this little town and everybody knows everyone and everyone knows what happened to my family and i may be a suspect or whatever to learn that 90 people <laughs> saw some variation of something I don't know how you wouldn't yeah, kind of lose it to be like, am I in some sort of fake world where everyone around me was playing pretend of not knowing? Yeah. Like that would be, I hope we get to talk to him. I want to talk to him. To say, I feel like he's going to have some reason that will help us I, understand yeah. that, that there's some, like, I get not having a fully completed case to actually feel comfortable going to court, but I feel like there's something more here and yeah. I'm hoping he can tell us what that is. Because I can't imagine... I'm someone accused of something horrible like that or just kind of looked at a certain way. And I go to my coffee shop all the time or I go to the store or whatever. And I know these people in my town. And then I find out 30 years later, even though they know what I've been going through, mm, I did actually see everything that happened firsthand. Well, and I will say Jake apologized to the family. So he came to them. You know, he's close with Mike and Dennis. And he said he felt awful that he didn't tell sooner. And they forgave him. They said, hey, you were a kid. You were scared for your life. I was going to say, him him I feel least frustrated but, but he, at he because carried a lot of guilt like i'm he, sure knowing fully well what happened to his friend's I'm grandparents sure. that was hard for him it's you were a kid and you locked eyes with murderers that and they directly threatened you right and your mother right like that to he, me is like he had every reason bra- to be literally you you need 10 years for his brain to even get to the point of like being able to process yeah. that so you almost can't be mad it's the people oh i saw two guys if you don't even know who it was, but Just you can tell. give a description, what is that going to do? Except, And there were plenty of 
incorrect leads that people did do just that. Yeah. They said, oh, I saw something weird. I'll say it. And yeah, it didn't go anywhere, but at least you tried. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll hopefully we'll be able to talk to Jake and Mike and we can uh, provide an solved. update. Yeah, that's me too. really just, I mean, horrible that it went that long and ripple effect through all the families. But absolutely. At least it's done. So if we get those interviews, we'll, of course, post on social media and update this episode. Bye. <laughs> My mom and I, you know, we watch everything. And one was Dexter. He finally hooked up with like the super wackadoo lady, like season five oh, or yeah. something. I like that season. And we're, and I'm just like, oh, that's graphic. Like they are both very naked. We're getting the whole room here. We're getting some thrusts. And so both of us, just, and both, and I'm like thirty something, and both of us just go, oh, take off those green socks. <laughs> she just goes, and it was like I don't know, ten years ago maybe, if that. And she's like, oh, hmm, that's how that works, huh? <laughs> like she'd never seen actual gay sex. Oh, that's enlightening. And it was like missionary style. She's like, oh, huh, okay. Big fake mouths. And they're like, destroyers. we're the cock destroyers. We're going to destroy your cock. I thought you meant she was watching like Grey's Anatomy and oh, got no, no, all no. upset. And then she you had to go on a hike. She was watching 9-11 on like, TV. Uh, what are you doing? It was literally happening. And she then was I watching had to 9-11 go, on TV. And they, <laughs> what a funny way to say that. Like, and the the premiere. The premiere of 9-11. <laughs> World premiere. Welcome to Murder the Rain, the show where we tell you about murder in, in the, the rain. rain. <laughs> I want to get fucked by a Home Depot bucket. And then another one was, he parted her slit and speared her. <laughs> Queef City. Kiss swollen lips. They say that a lot. Well, I'm She sold. took it all the way from where the balls is to where it isn't anymore. Passed his length. Write that down. Yeah. Passed his length. Yes, yes. Inches past his length is how hard she took it. <laughs> you can't not to die in a freak gasoline fight accident. I'm scared all the time. I want my gun. <laughs> I don't know if you want to try that to take to say uh, particularly. Particularly. Yeah, particularly. Particularly. Like, because if you're saying particularly, Partic would be different. But what's interesting is I don't have that in this. <laughs> <laughs> we're old. We're old people now. We go to sleep at nine. We're up at four. Watch Ariel America and take a morning nap. It was also abnormal. <laughs> God damn it. Everything was going so well. That was me. It was wow. a gurgle. Oh, wow. We're it's like, a great mic. It worked its way up my esophagus. I mean, you could hear it inside your, behind your sternum. In my you could slit. Hear I that could was, hear yeah. it hitting your abdomen. Yeah. And then it was it, north of your slit. North of my slit. <laughs> even, even by, the, what the fuck? Similarly, a man named Marty Schmetzler. <laughs> fuck it. I knew I was in a lab. He appeared to be carrying a fire gun. A fire gun? <laughs> the plea deal between law enforcement and Bartlett was that he... W the plea deal between law enforcement... Oh, boy. The plea deal between law enforcement and Bartlett was that he would give them... No. 
Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 